0: And be seated. And we're gonna do something a little differently today. Eric had told me about a month ago, I think. The elders had a meeting, and um, they they uh, they determined. I love these elders, man. They determined that we need to we need to have a corporate evangelism day in the church on a regular occasion, like once a month at least. And uh, I think Eric was mentioning, you know, like two or three hours a, a month. Where we just get together and we go and we pick a place and we go share the gospel. Well, okay. So that's always been the thrust of the church from day one. I mean, that's, that's, that's the thrust of Vanguard, um, to go forth and to evangelize. That's the church's mission. That should be all the church's mission, but certainly, um, that is something that, that we value highly. And, um, and then I was asked to, uh, I think, I don't know if some of you are aware of the law college. But the law college does something called the Sons of Issachar worldview lectures, and they asked me if I would if I would be uh, the the lecturer for this year. And the topic is the evangelism the 21st century. So I thought, well, this is perfect, right? Because they're looking for this, and then for a church, we need to catalyze and and continue to do this. And uh, Riley, um, I mean. Look, Riley and I have been talking as well, even, and I, and I know we've all been talking about doing um, door knocking on these these homes behind the, the church here. So there's, there's, the opportunities are overwhelming in a sense. It's almost like, where do you even begin? But the point is, is because of the church's mission, because of Vanguard's mission, because next week is Christmas and you're going to be around some family members. Probably you're going to see some people that are lost and that you usually don't see or interact with. So just to have some motivation, I think we did this last year as well, just to encourage people and motivate us uh, to remind ourselves, to be reminded that, that the mission of the church is an evangelistic mission, not just any, not just, not just this church, but the church in, at large, that's the, that should be the mission of the church. That should be our mission. And so what we're going to do today is I have um, five things that, that deal with certain challenges regarding evangelism in our community and at large. Um, but first of all, let's look at what evangelism is. Just a little recap. So some of this might be familiar to you. That would be great. Um, and if not, that's why, I mean, it's even if it is, it's a good refresher. But if it's not, that's great, too. So this is Acts chapter 8. This is the best place to look for evangelism. Uh, as far as just what it is, I think we complicate it, we overlook it a lot of times, we make it harder than it is, but this will kind of get us going as far as leading us into certain challenges regarding evangelism. Acts chapter 8, 1 through 4, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. We're we'll, we'll putting, who to death? Stephen. Okay, Stephen's the first martyr of the Christian church. Saul was in hearty agreement. This will, of course, become Paul. Saul, who will later become Paul. Paul Paul's in hearty agreement with this. He loves that idea. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That phrase is monumental, because what that phrase tells us is that when the persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, everybody's scattering. All the Christians are leaving Jerusalem, except who? The apostles. So that tells us, When we get down here, okay, verse 2 and 3 is talking about Stephen and Saul, but go to verse 4. Verse 4, therefore, those who had been scattered, those who had left Jerusalem, which is who? The laymen. Not the apostles, the laymen, right? Because the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So these are are laymen. And, you know, sometimes that can be a derogatory term, and and it's not meant to be, but it's just this is the point. Look what they're doing. Those who had been scattered went about. Now, your translation might say preaching the word. All right? Preaching the word. That's actually a very, I don't know why they translated that way. Because that's not, look at verse 5. Verse 5 is preaching. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ. That's Caruso. That's preaching. Authoritative preaching, right? Verse 4 is not that same word. Although they'll try to use it synonymously, well, in NASB it doesn't. But you know, a lot of your translations they'll say, "Okay, well, they went about preaching the word, and Philip went about preaching the word." And you're thinking, "Okay, everybody's preaching the word." Well, actually, in verse four, the word there is something like they're gospelizing, they're gossiping the word in, co- in, in, in the conversations that they're having as they go about. Just like when Christ talks about Matthew 28, "As you go, you probably heard sermons on that." You know, "As you go, make disciples." Okay, so in the the everyday life of what you're doing, people who are not apostles are called to evangelize. All right, share the gospel. That's what they're doing here. They're just sharing the gospel. They're going about, they're scattered. They went about sharing the gospel, preaching the word, gospelizing the word, gossiping the word, however you want to look at that. But that's what they're doing, and that's what evangelism is. I mean, it's that simple, right? It's sharing the gospel with people who are lost. And of course, this church, I mean y'all, y'all, y'all know a lot of this. Um, but here's the thing, okay, what's the motive? Look at First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. What's the motive of evangelism? That's important. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you know what the motive is? You go to heaven. If you don't evangelize and you're a Jehovah's Witness, you see when they're knocking on your door, you know, and you're like, wow, these guys got a lot of zeal. They're they always they're set up at airports, on the college campuses, outside the football game. they're everywhere and you're like, man, these guys are zealous. these guys are hungry for soul. Well actually if they don't evangelize, it's in their it's in their statements of of you know what it means LNG white to get to heaven. If they don't do this, they don't go to heaven. All right So that's not our motive, right? That's not our motive. We don't evangelize so that we go to heaven. We already have heaven. Christ has already purchased heaven for us. Here's Peter. Peter says this. Look what he says in chapter 2, 1 Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Eric was doing a catechism earlier about the continuity of the covenants in the Old and New Testament. Well, this is a great place to look at that. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is language that comes from Deuteronomy. Speaking of the church in the Old Testament, and he's saying, "Look, this is the New Testament church as well. You're a holy, a chosen race, a, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession." And then he says, "This so that," which tells us there's a motive here. Why are you this so that you may proclaim the excellencies? Notice the word "proclaim." There, it requires speech. Right? If I walk around, you know, sometimes people think, "Well, just if you walk around with a big smile on your face." People are going to know you're a Christian, and and that's not what the Bible teaches. I mean, it's about proclaiming. We'll see this in a minute, but proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what's the motive here? What we have received in the gospel through Christ. Christ has come. He's delivered us. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so, therefore, as a response to that, we go out, and what do we do? We proclaim the excellencies of him. I mean, again, don't don't you know? Sometimes I think with evangelism, we're just all wrapped up in thinking. Okay, well, I got to say everything right. I got to have everything down. I got to make sure everything, you know. And what if I don't know anything? What if they ask me hard questions? That kind of thing. And it kind of, it can kind of, um, it can kind of sap us. And what what we're seeing here is, it's really just about talking about what you know about Christ. That's all evangelism is. And then he says this though. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, there is a sense in which our behavior is important, so I do want to point this out as well, because if I'm out there, y- y'all know this, if you're out evangelizing and you're sharing the Christ, you're sharing the gospel, and then you turn around and you're kicking your dog and you're beating your wife. And, okay, well, certainly there's something wrong with that, right? Now, look what he says here in the same passage. He says, Look at verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, now check this out, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of salvation, right? So there's a sense in which our lifestyle needs to be consistent with our gospel. But isn't that interesting? He says that in the same passage. I used to be really down on on lifestyle evangelism. (coughs) That's, you know, if I'm kind of going back to what I just said, If if I'm really nice, Then, then, you know, people are just going to fall in love with Jesus. I'm just smiling all the time. Okay. Um, The proclamation is important, but so is the lifestyle. It's very, it's it's very clear here. So that's that, you know, that's interesting to think about. Here's the thing though. Okay. Let's look at five challenges, five challenges as far as evangelism go. And this is really kind of what I want to hit on. Um, But if ask yourself this, okay, when it comes to evangelism in your life, in our culture, in our city, um, in this nation, around the world, however you want to couch that, ask yourself this, okay? And I'm going to, we look, What is what would you say are the five, I, so I have five here, what are the five greatest challenges to evangelism? The five greatest challenges. All right, so this is kind of arbitrary, because, I mean, if I were to, you know, you can go around and you can, hey, Logan, what are the five greatest challenges? Eric, what are the five greatest challenges? Brittany. You know, Caleb, we can do that and we might have different answers, but I'm pretty sure the five I'm going to give you, you're not going to disagree with. And I'm pretty sure the five that you would come up with would have something to do with some of these categories also. All right. But here's the five that I came up with. Number one, in the reformed community, right? What is it? Stephen knows. What is it? It's hyper Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism. Now, here's the thing. I have personally never met a hyper-Calvinist. Okay? And I don't, I'm assuming, I mean, you don't really hear about hyper calvinists as far as someone actually holding to the doctrine of hyper-Calvinism. There used to be a, a group in the 18th century, in the days of uh, um, the missionaries. They were, you know, when they were trying to go, Hudson Taylor's trying to go out overseas, Adoniram Judson. They're trying to go out and bring the gospel to people. And there's so many hyper-Calvinists in these churches that they're actually saying, you're not going to do that. We're not bringing the gospel to India or China. That's ridiculous. Sit down. That kind of stuff. So that kind of mindset, you don't really get in our day, right? I have never met a hyper-Calvinist. Put it this way, okay? The hy- Even the hyper-Calvinists that I'm like, hey, man, that's kind of hyper-Calvinist. You know, there's certain people that'll say, well, they don't believe in the free offer of the gospel, that kind of stuff, and that that... That would be a type of hyper Calvinism, but when you go to them, you say, "Hey, that sounds hyper Calvinist." They'll all say, "Well, I'm not a hyper Calvinist, right?" Here's the thing, though. We're talking functionally, functionally, all right. Practically speaking, is hyper Calvinism a thing? Okay. Now here's the thing. Look, and this is why you know. To be honest, I mean, this is why this kind of stuff needs to be preached at least once a year because this is deadly. This is poison. Look. Okay. Now, if we go to You can ask yourself this, okay? Here's the question. When we talk about hyper-Calvinism, okay, do you truly believe? Now, think of this, okay? I know that on paper, you know, we'll say, okay, of course, of course. But do you believe that you personally, that you, whatever your name is, right, that you believe you are a means by which God saves people? Do you actually believe that? And I know on paper we'll say yes, right? God uses means, namely human beings, to go out and save souls. But really, ask yourself this. Do you believe that you are a means, that you personally are a means by which God converts people who are lost and dead in their sins right now? Right? The answer is absolutely we're a mean, we're means. Look at, um, look at 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this. This is verse 22. Okay, now this is kind of his, this, this whole passage is about evangelism in a sense, okay? He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made my, this is verse 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may, what, win more. You know, sometimes we think soul winning is just the IFB crowd, the independent fundamental Baptist crowd, you know, like, well, now we're reformed. We don't talk about soul winning. We, we talk about regeneration, You know, we talk about... No, he's talking about winning more what? Winning more souls. That's what he's saying. I'm going to be a slave to all so that I may win more souls. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ so that I might win those who are without law. Right? He's saying, look, Verse 22, he summarizes. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I I may by all means save some. You know what Paul believes? Paul believes he is a means by which Jews and non-Jews get converted. Now, as good Calvinists, we know that God is sovereign. God has his elect, and only the elect get saved. right? But it's like Spurgeon said, we don't know who the elect are, so I think Spurgeon even said, you know, if, if the elect had yellow X's on their back, I would go around lifting up the people's shirts to see if they had that X. But since God has not put a yellow X on their back, I'm going to share the gospel with everybody. And that is how God saves people. Look again, look. okay. look at Romans 9. Romans 9, this is, uh, and I know we've dealt with this passage before. Remember the context or when we did that, but Romans 9. If you were to ask yourself this, okay, if I have a friend who's not a Calvinist, and we do, right? We should, <laughs> we should have friends that aren't Calvinists. <laughs> How sectarian are we? You know, it's like, no, nah, man. All right, look, but Romans 9 if I have a friend and I do who's not a Calvinist, what passage do I go to? to show them that Calvinism is truth, is biblical. Romans 9, right? There's other places, but Romans 9. I go to Romans 9, and I'm starting, you know, you read through here. Look at, I mean, let's, let's go to the, the very Calvinistic passages first. He's talking about, um, look at verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named, etc. Uh, look at look at verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. There it is. If you're not a Calvinist and you read through that and you're not a Calvinist by the time you finish that, then you're not being faithful to the Bible. That's all it comes down to. Okay. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to what? Election or his choice would stand. Not because of works. It's almost like just to make sure you're, you know, didn't miss the point here, not because of works. Not because of walking an aisle, not because of a decision, not because you were baptized, not because you're better off than so-and-so, you're better morally or whatever, you're smarter, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate it. Well, what did Esau do? Well, Esau was born in sin, just like Jacob. God's not unjust for not choosing Esau. God is just for damning Esau because that's what Esau deserved in his sin. That's why we look at it and we say, you know what? I also deserve to be damned, right? It's by God's grace. Jacob is saved because of God's grace. So that's the point of a lot of this, right? So there's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be? Of course not. Here's the thing, though. Here's the point. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 1, in the most most Calvinistic passage in the Bible, Look what Paul says. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he's starting to talk about, you know, all the blessings they have received from God. But they are not saved. They're not converted. This entire chapter flows out of Paul's desire to see these people saved and converted. That's, his, that's what he wants to see, his people converted. And so, again, faith. Now, look at chapter 10, actually, while we're in this section. Because, um, you know, I've, I've told you before, every one of Paul's letters, there's somewhere in that letter, I promise, where Paul mentions something like, you, having heard the gospel, you received it. Having heard the gospel this, having heard the gospel, we having preached the gospel to you, something like that. He says it right here in chapter 10. He says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how are they going to call on him? Well, they look up in the stars and they see, you know, this airplane, I don't know, like an Elon Musk Starlink thing, and and that thing's going to somehow write the gospel in the clouds, right? No. How do people hear the gospel? He says, how then will they call, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And again, every single, we don't have time to go through all of Paul's letters here, but every single one of Paul's letters somewhere embedded in that letter, there will be a phrase or a reference to the fact that having heard the gospel, you believe it. And so again, we are means of grace or means of, of salvation. We don't save them. We know that. You know, If you're out evangelizing, sometimes you might hear that. I've heard that a lot. People come up and they're like, do you really think you're actually going to convert anybody by telling them the gospel? And it's like, no, I don't think I'm going to convert anybody. I don't think I can convert anybody at all. But the Holy Spirit converts people through what we're doing, the proclamation of the Word. See that? So God in His providence uses human beings, human agents, and look, you might be saying, yeah, but I'm just a I'm you know, I'm I'm a mom with kids. I mean, what what I'm not a preacher, I can't do any of that. I'm just you know, I'm just a, a guy that, you know, I work over here, I, I I run a tractor or whatever. Who am I? Well, that's exactly the type of people God uses. Why? Because those are the people that you would not expect to see people saved through them. And guess who gets the greater glory for that? God does. You're like, well, I haven't been to seminary, I don't, I don't know all the things to say, you know. That's exactly who God uses when it comes to evangelism. But the point is, is hyper-Calvinism is a huge challenge. And again, I know, look, don't leave it to someone else, because that's the other thing we do, right? Don't leave it to someone else to share the gospel with people around you. Now, we all know in this church that, okay, well, who's the one that's going to share the gospel with our kids? Well, we are as parents. We know that. I think we all know that, right? But there's a lot of people in the Evangelical circles in America that say, "Hey, that's the preacher's job to share the gospel with my kid. That's the church's job to share the gospel with my kid." And that's not the church's job. That's not the that's not the preacher's job. I mean, hopefully that's happening. But that's your job. That's my job for my kids, right? And not only our kids, but think of this. All right, if we're not the one sharing the gospel with them, guess what? Somebody's going to share something with them. Somebody is sharing. When we say gospel, we don't always, okay, gospel means good news. There's true gospel, and then there's false gospel, right? But people are out there right now, including the Jehovah's Witnesses that I mentioned, right? But not just them, secular humanists. People are sharing, they're communicating certain spiritual things that are not true with your children. People will share things, we know that, with your, with your children. But here's the thing, not just our children, who we love, of course, but our neighbors, If we don't share the gospel with our neighbor, who's going to? Well, the Jehovah's Witness is going to. The Roman Catholic is going to. The Mormon's going to. The pagan, you know, with the pink hair and they worship Athena is going to. Somebody's going to share with that person that we're saying, oh, I'll just leave it up to so, you know, maybe the IFP guys will come by and knock on their door and do it. I'm not, I don't have time to do it. Or I'm not, you know, I don't. That's the problem though, right? It's hyper Calvinism, functionally. I've got it, you know, because what happens, right? We don't say this. You don't want to say it because then you'll be a heretic and everything. But what happens in our mind? Well, I mean, if they're elect, God's going to say them anyways. I don't got to do it. We kick back. We don't say anything, right? That's hyper-Calvinism, functionally. So, and the other thing, too, is so widely, so the gospel widely. That's the other thing, you know, because a lot of times we're like, yeah, but, and this leads me to the second point. The second challenge is functional deism or rationalism. Okay, that means deism, of course, is God created the universe, he started the universe, and then he just kind of walked away and said, okay, now it's going to run on its own. Okay, When it comes to evangelism in our day, because, because the ground is so hard, and I'm talking about in America and the West, I mean, I get very, I don't know about you, but almost envious. I don't know, and I don't think it's in a sinful way, but I get envious when I hear of people going to India and they say, you go to India and you go on a street corner and you get a microphone like this, you got your Bible, you know, and you start preaching. They say people just like flock. You say, hey, we're going to have a Bible conference over here in the middle of nowhere out in the bush. And guess what? Everyone shows up. That's that's like, wow. I knew a guy, I think I told you this, but I knew a guy who was a missionary in India for like 10 years. And it was the first ministry he really ever did. He was over there in India for 10 years. He came back to the States and the people in the States, because the spiritual atmosphere was so different in the States, you know how it is. There's indifference, there's apathy. No one really cares. There's everything else in the world going on besides Christ. I don't, no one's interested in Christ. It seems like no one's hungry. This guy got so bitter and so upset and so resentful that he really had to work through some stuff when he came back to the States because he's like, I can't figure it out. Over here in India, everybody's hungry for the word. Over here in the West, nobody's hungry for the word. Okay, there, this is you know obviously it's like the opposite of a uh, revival type atmosphere. But here's the thing: because of that, do we not at certain times say, "Look, well, I'm not going to evangelize because I don't, I don't, I don't really believe God can save that person." Do we think that? I mean, do we actually look? I know we wouldn't say we think that, because again, you know, you'd be bad Christian, bad Calvinist. But do we not actually think that, right? I, look, I've shared the gospel with my neighbor. This is a true story, you know, probably four or five times. And he comes over, talking all the time. I've invited him to church, share the gospel, everything. He's not having it. Not. He's like, yeah, hey, yeah, whatever. He's a, he's a cool guy. We hang out. He gave me an Xbox. He gave me a TV. He gave me some. Jordan's for my three-year-old that, you know, this guy's a single guy, bachelor. I don't know what he's doing. I mean, it's so weird. He's a great, just a nice guy, right? When it comes to the gospel, nothing. Doesn't want it, has no interest in it. Now, I'm looking at this, and I have to admit, subconsciously, I'm thinking, okay, look, I've already shared the gospel with this guy four times, and I know he is just not interested whatsoever, okay? There's something in me that says, you know what, this guy's got no, 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 no hope. I've already shared it. My sister's the same way. I've shared it with her a thousand times. I've seen her get very aggressive about it. So I'm like, man, she's probably going to die and go to hell. I wouldn't say that I did, but I wouldn't admit that, right? But do we not all think that? And if we're being honest, I think we have to admit, all right? My neighbor, I've casted him overboard as somebody. He's hopeless, man. I've shared it. Didn't happen. Didn't happen the first four times. Not going to happen the fifth. So I'm not going to try. And that's how we operate. And so that's why functional, that's functional deism. That's saying, okay, I do not believe that God can break into this man's life and supernaturally do a work of grace and change this man so that he's no longer a God hater, but a God lover. You see that? That is deism. I'm saying, I don't, I don't believe God can do that. Or here's the other thing. Here's the other catch. And this is, You don't see this in Calvinist circles so much as you do all the other churches in in America. But you also, here's here's the flip side of that, okay? Because I've already tried sharing the gospel with this guy and I don't see anything happen, now, you know what I have to do? I've got to help God out. Now I've got to help God out. Now I have to make the gospel a little more watered down, a little more easy to believe. All right, you know, it's like, all right, man, look. I know I've told you the gospel and everything, so you don't, you know, you don't, you don't really, you don't believe the gospel, but let's start here. Do you believe in a higher power? Yeah, I believe in a higher power. All right. And y'all have heard of this, you know, it's like, okay, well, do you, do you think you're a sinner? Well, no, not not really. Well, now, hold on, man. Like, I mean, you, you don't think you've ever sinned. Oh yeah. Maybe once or twice. So you think you're a sinner? Yeah, Maybe. You know, and and then of course it leads in, okay, well, so you believe in a higher power. We'll call him we'll call him God. Can you say God? Yeah, okay, God. Okay, and you and you think you're a sinner? Yeah, I think I'm a sinner. Okay, well, here's what you got to do, right? The five steps come next. All right, now say the prayer, etc., and then you'll be then you'll be saved. I and mean, then he says the prayer, and then I get to come back to church and I get to say, guys, my neighbor got saved last night. He said the prayer, he called upon God, right? That's a lot of times how it is. Not in the Calvinist world. But in the world in large, in the Christian church, that's how it is. Y'all know that, right? I mean, it's like, I gotta help God out. I tried the hard stuff. I tried giving him the actual gospel. It didn't like that. So I had to water it down to help God out. That's also a form of deism or rationalism, functional rationalism. Again, it's just disbelief. Isn't that what that is? It's disbelief that God's actually just going to convert this guy. How? Through the preaching of the word. That's what Paul believed. That's what the that's what the saints of old believe that's what we need to believe that God's going to save somebody people and here's the other thing and this is again it's 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 not just um i mean this this is convicting for me as well but here's the thing okay do we expect God to save people that's where this comes down to okay do i expect God to save people and i mean again if you if you if you if you look at it i have to answer the question uh, i have to say no I don't always expect God to convert people. When I go out sometimes to the campus, you know, and you're preaching, you're evangelizing, it's like, man, I've been out here so often and I've, I've seen these. This is a hardened place, man. This is a dark and wicked place. And you go out there almost just expecting the darkness and the wickedness just to to, to resume and continue on forever. And, and, but that's an indictment on me. You see, I should be able to go out there confident, say, okay, yes, we know God has his elect out there, and they're not all elect. I get that, but I don't know that in the sense of, okay, I also know that there's been moments when God pours his spirit upon the place and things happen and people are saved and people are changed and everything else. So that's the kind of expectation we need to have because, again, so there's two those two challenges is hyper-Calvinism and functional deism, and they go together. They go together. Now, the third thing, and this is probably, I mean, this this hits home as well, but the third challenge for evangelism is the fear of man. The fear of man. All right, now, look what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. Paul was dealing in Galatia with people that feared man. And because they feared man, what they were doing is they were telling the church there, the Christians there, that they had to be circumcised because they because they feared man. The teachers there feared man because they knew if they went along, if they actually came and said, no, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved, guess what would happen to them? Well, they would be persecuted by the Jewish believers there. That's the background of Galatians. Here's chapter 6. Now look at verse 15. Or 12, excuse me. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. That's the whole book. I mean, that's what the book's about. They try to compel you to be circumcised. Here, though, we actually find out the motive behind the people as far as why they were making them get circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. This is why you have... Liberal churches. This is why you have woke churches. This is why you have churches that will not preach about abortion. They will not preach about LGBTQIAPKK plus. They will not preach about politics. They will not preach about anything difficult because they know if they do so, there's going to be an outcry and persecution. That's where you get this stuff. That's where you get woke churches. You know, woke churches are saying, "Well, we don't want to get persecuted by, by you know, whoever the liberals," and so we're going to. Go with the, the, um, the CRT stuff, the woke stuff. That's where you get this stuff because they think, well, maybe the culture will receive us better if we do this. And that's what these guys in Galatia were doing. Maybe the people around us in our area will receive the gospel better if we say, yes, you do have to get circumcised because that's what the people at that time were wanting them to do. So the very heavily Jewish population. And so they said, yeah, you have to be circumcised. Paul comes in and says, no, you don't. What happens to Paul when he says that? They persecute him. They come after him. And so the same thing happens today, though. In order for me not to get persecuted when I'm evangelizing, I have to water down the gospel a lot. And then maybe they won't come after me. Maybe they won't think I'm a bigot, a fundamentalist, or a Bible thumper, right? All the other weird names. That's what it comes down to. That's also why going back to friendship evangelism, there is a type of friendship evangelism that is in this same vein of of, of, of fear of man because it goes like this, okay? I meet a guy and uh, and man this is, it used to be very common. I don't know if it's common anymore but you know it's like this I you know what here's the thing. <laughs> Look this is something we can do as well. It's very tempting and I now that I say it, I've done this before. I have done this before. okay so you meet a guy. Person, you're talking to the person, you're like, all right, talking to him, you find out, okay, well, I can tell this guy is, he's pretty, he's definitely not a Christian. He doesn't quite know I'm a Christian yet. He might, he might have his assumptions, but he doesn't quite know I'm a Christian yet. He's definitely not a Christian yet. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to be this guy's friend for a while. And then over time, I'm going to wait for the window of opportunity to open up and then I'm going to hit him with the gospel, right? Right. And then time goes by, and we're friends, and then it's like, you know, a week goes by, and I'm I'm like, man, this guy's cool. I like, you know, we're hanging out, but man, maybe next week I'll share the gospel with you. Next week goes by, doesn't happen. Three weeks go by, still doesn't happen. And now, now you might be saying, look, I mentioned some things about Jesus. He knows I'm a Christian now. And you're like, yes, at least he knows I'm a Christian, right? But I haven't shared the gospel. See, here's the thing. A lot of times... It's easy to go to someone and say, hey, I'm a Christian. You can go to anybody and say, hey, I'm a Christian. They're not gonna, they don't care about that. When they start to care is when you say, okay, I'm a Christian, and this is the only right way. There's no other way to God. And the gospel is this. You're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior because you're on your way to hell. And you can phrase it. You don't even have to mention that. I mean, you can, you can say, hey, there's a God who is holy. He's righteous. He's good. And you've, you've, you've greatly offended this God." and you're on your you're on your way to destruction you're going to be judged for your sin when you start applying that to that person then the hackles come up then you start see the, the the venom you start see the you start to see the rage right it's easy for me just to say yeah i'm a christian and never tell them the gospel so that's why even look we have to check our motives when it comes to evangelism or when it comes to why we don't evangelize and a lot of times, maybe all the time, it comes down to I'm afraid of man. I fear man. I fear the response of this guy. And it can be a complete stranger. I think I've shared with y'all, I had a friend that was, I mean, back in the day, you know, when you first start evangelizing, you're like, man, I, you hand out tracks by the buckets. Over time, something happens where you, I don't know what it is, maybe you get in your own head or something, but you start to, you, you go through the drive through at Wendy's or McDonald's or wherever, and you have the track. And, and you're nervous all this, you know. You just you're 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 cowering, you're you're withering up at the prospect of handing this gospel tract to this utter stranger that you'll never see again in your life. And it's like, why is that? Why do I? But it's it's a protection mechanism for my flesh. And so that's another challenge of of evangelism. It's just the fear of man and persecution. And that's something when Christ talks about self-denial, that's what he's talking about, to deny yourself, to follow Christ. That means when it comes to evangelism, that's why evangelism's hard. Have you all noticed that? I mean, it's easy to, in a sense, it's relatively easy, and it's exuberating to come to church and be around the saints. All right? That's exuberating. That's something that, that you know, even, even in those days when it's hard, you know, you're like, man, I, I don't feel like going. Once you get there, you know how it is. Once you get there, you're like, cool, I'm glad I'm here. You're talking. You're worshiping Christ. You're like, cool. This was worth it. But when it comes to ev- evangelism, is kind of similar to that. But it's but it's hard, man. Have y'all ever noticed that evangelism is hard? It's terrible. It gives you uh, Ray Comfort says you know he, he, people talk about um, butterflies. He calls them helicopters when you're evangelizing. You get helicopters. It's hard. Why? Because we love ourselves too much, and that leads me to this, the 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 fifth thing. Actually, I'm going to save that one. The fourth thing, a disbelief in hell. Disbelief in hell. Look, again, do you believe in hell? We all say yes, of course, we believe in hell, right? But do we actually believe in hell? Do we actually believe in hell? You've heard of the atheist who was offended by the guy who wouldn't share the gospel with him. The guy believes in, he's like, if you really believe in hell, you're not going to share the gospel with me? Like, how much do you, I think he even says, how much do you have to hate a person To believe in hell and not share the gospel with a person. This is an atheist. Like, do we, and this is why the question again, do we truly believe that God destroys sinners? Do we truly believe my neighbor, bless his soul, man? Warren, right here, who's giving me an Xbox is, and I haven't even, I mean, I haven't, I don't even know how to play an Xbox anymore. I found that out. Xbox TV. Eric Jordan's for my kid. He comes over, especially in summer when I'm reading outside. We hung out. We talk all the time, man. I'm getting his boxes when he's out of town. He's helping us out when we're at it. This guy is going to be in hell in 80 years unless God saves this man. You know what I mean? So even if I'm out there sharing the gospel and I'm not seeing this man saved, am I praying for this guy? Am I on my knees? God, have mercy on this man's soul. He's going to wind up in hell. My sister. You have relatives, you have neighbors, you have friends, right? Do you actually believe that they will wind up in hell one day? And I know that we'll say yes. I know we will, and that's good. That's proper. And that's actually, of course, that's true, right? But functionally, do we act as though people are on their way to hell? And if so, right, wouldn't that motivate us to overcome our fear of man? Wouldn't that motivate us? And if I'm if I'm in the drive-thru, I'm like, man, I'm really worried about myself because they might look at me funny if I hand them this track. But then I'm reminded, wait a minute, these people are on their way to hell. This person is on their way to hell. They might think I'm crazy for doing this, but this is the only way they can escape the judgment to come is by calling upon Christ. So what does that help me to do, motivate me to do? Well, you know, close my eyes and hand the gospel track out, or whatever it is. But at least it's, that's the point, though, right? Do we actually believe and here's the other thing do we actually believe that sin merits hell? that's more of like our culture? you know when we see well, I mean I know hell exists, but I just can't see my grandma going there. Man, I just can't see my I can't see my neighbor who hooked me up with all these things, right He's a good guy. I just can't see that. but then we realize why hell exists. Hell exists because God is good, not because not because God is evil, but because men are evil. And if you were to, if you were to, to crack the lid on my neighbor, <laughs> if you were to see the ins- his heart, just like if you were to open up the lid and you were to see our hearts, especially before we were in Christ, you would see a, a cesspool of all kinds of monstrosity there, wickedness there, a pool of evil, a sink of filth. That's what you would see. And so absolutely, sin merits hell. And absolutely, as the Bible teaches, there is no such thing as a good person. Romans 3, there is none who do good, no, not one. Absolutely, Psalm 5, God hates all evildoers, right? These are things, truths that you have in the Bible. And if we believe these, they will motivate us to evangelism. Fifthly, lack of personal religion. And this is kind of like the, this is where everything is. This is, this is like the uh, Spurgeon's boiler room. Remember the boiler room? When they went to Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, and the church was growing and all things, all kinds of things were happening. And they go to Spurgeon and they say, Hey Spurgeon, what's the secret here? Like what's what's the what's what's going on here? Like, well, what's and he says, the boiler room. That's the secret. They're like, the boiler room. He's like, Yeah, the boiler room. They're like, What? Are, all right, is that is that in the Bible somewhere? He's like, No. It's it's in the basement like the boiler room and so he goes and he shows them the boiler room he opens the doors up and there are people under this church on their faces praying to God he says the boiler room is the secret what's the secret you call upon Christ you call call upon the name of God why because this is supernatural man all of this stuff that we're talking about is supernatural it requires God to move I I can share the gospel with 300 million Americans and nothing happens right? Unless God moves. That's the key. God must move. And so when we're looking at personal religion, it's a sense of a, you know, a contact, a living contact with divine things. That's what this is about. A, a you know, here's, here's the thing in revival times, When you read about these revivals, it's amazing because it's, it's like this. You go up to somebody, you know, like you call me up. Hey, Ryan, what's going on? Hey, nothing much, man. What are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm just over here doing this or doing that. What are you doing? Oh, I'm doing this. Doing that. In revival times, you know what it is? You see somebody, you haven't seen him in, let's say, two days. Hey, Eric, or hey, Ryan, what's going on? You say, Brother, brother, how is it with your soul? Brother, do you know God? I meet some stranger. You know, my neighbor walks up. Hey, Ryan, revival times, you know what happens? You see George Whitfield. They talk about George Whitfield, and they say, You couldn't go five minutes, I think they even said like 15 seconds in a conversation with George Whitfield without him asking, Are you right with God? Do you know your sins are forgiven? That kind of question. They were living, it was like they were living with with a regular contact with God consistently. And you say this, look, because this is not, look, I live in America too, right? We live in in a time, I don't know, this is such a spiritually hardened place. And I don't know why. I mean, again, I mean, if you go to China, supposedly they're just, they'd falling over their faces for a sheet of the Bible. And we don't see that here. And we wonder, well, why is that? What's going on here? And it's not, it's like, you know, Peter and John, they even say, well, you know, these were people, and they say, well, these are, these are people that have been with Jesus. And they say, well, man, why are you looking at us as though it was our wisdom or our piety that has caused these things to happen? It's not. It's because of Jesus. And so when you're looking at this and you're like, man, I don't want to just beat you down. I don't want to beat any, you know, because I, I I'm telling you, I know the struggle. But it's like this. If you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, I I I admit that my evangelism has been very sluggish. And and my my, my, my perspective of souls has been careless. I have not really considered their eternal destiny. I remember back in the day, man, it was you could go into I mean, anywhere, and I remember just thinking like, wow, all of these people are going to hell. This guy's going to hell. This guy, you know, like maybe this guy's safe, but now, and it's my own sin, right? You walk, I mean, it doesn't resonate that way. I don't know why, but I do know there's a place and time mainly, you know, like primarily specifically right now to repent of that and to bring that to God and say, God, look, I have been sluggish in my evangelism. I have been careless when it comes to souls. I have not seen these souls as precious enough to share the gospel with, your precious gospel with. I haven't done that. Lord, I have feared man. I have feared persecution. I have feared the flesh. I have feared the response of people when I share the gospel with them, or I have feared not knowing what to say at times, and then that keeps me from saying anything. And I've done that. And so this is the whole point, right? You get to a place where you say, okay, I repent of that. I've, I've, not, I've not done what I ought to do here. I'm going to bring that to the Lord. Peter and John, it's amazing because you know what they said? These guys are being persecuted. They're being hounded. And what do they say? They say, look, we must speak of what we've seen and heard. We have to do this. We must, we must do this. So if you have a lack of love in your heart, for lost people, which I do. I admit that. I mean, I don't weep at night for my neighbor, Warren. What's up with that? And even if I wasn't, I'm not, you know, like a weeper, but let's say, I, I don't know if I've even had like, you know, like, like 10 minutes of earnest prayer for my neighbor. And so I'm saying, look, that's a lack of love on my part. And something is off as far as the mechanism behind how I'm seeing reality and seeing my neighbor and seeing human beings. And so the answer is not, well, I just got to pull myself up by the bootstraps and try harder. The answer is to go back to Christ. Christ, fill me with your spirit. Christ, give me the proper proper perspective. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs, like Jonathan Edwards says, so that I can see my neighbor and everyone else through this perspective of this life lasts for 70 years, 80 years at most, and then they die, and then they're either going to hell or going to heaven. That's it, right? So that is the perspective here. And the other thing is this. Look to Christ. Why? Because Christ is the great evangelist here. Think about what Christ does. When Adam sins against God, who is there to bring the gospel back to Adam and Eve? After they sin against God, God is, right? Whenever Abraham is over here and he's a pagan and he's worshiping idols, who's there who shows up to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to do this, and here's the gospel? God's the one that does that. And Christ's entire ministry on earth, right? He's not just going to Jews. You see him making trips out to the Gentiles. So Christ is the great evangelist here. So that's the other thing as far as just encouragement goes and a response. You know, look to Christ. And and then lastly, 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 there's this. Intentionally actively engage in evangelism. That's the thing. That's why, you know, sometimes I don't even like preaching sermons like this because look. You can't beat somebody over the head into making them evangelize, nor do I want to do that, right? I mean, you can't, in other words, you can't guilt somebody into evangelizing. You can't guilt somebody into uh, vacuuming the floors in here. You can't do that because they might, that might work for like a week or two, but if they're not doing it for the right motive, it's just going to fall to pieces anyways, right? So here's what it comes down to, right? What it comes down to is when you're looking around, okay, I, as a Christian, if you were a Christian, I know for a fact, because you have the Holy Spirit in you, you do love souls. That's a fact, right? You love God, you love your neighbor, you love souls, because Christ lives within you. That's a fact. And there are times when that living reality, that living contact with God is more, it seems like it's more suppressed. It seems like it's not as apparent. I'm not as sensitive to the things of God as I would like to be. But here's the thing. Ultimately, this is where we go back to Christ. We recognize, okay, what has Christ done for us? He has laid down his life for us. This goes back to what 1 Peter was saying. Peter was saying because of Christ, because of what he's done for us, we now turn to him, we give our lives to him, and part of the call is, you know what, we're called to evangelize. So even if you don't feel like doing it, you got to do it. Is that right? Even if you don't feel like doing it, even if your flesh rebels, you still got to do it. And then lastly, I know I just said lastly. James, he likes that. Second lastly, pray for souls. Pray for souls. And And we intentionally try to do that here. But pray for souls, pray for conversions, pray for power, pray for our neighbors, pray for... Pray for God to open doors to evangelize, and he will too. That's what Paul said. Paul said, oh, pray that these doors would be open for us. Pray that these doors would be open. So pray that God gives us open doors. All right, and let's pray for this community. Pray for this church. I mean, I'm not into church growth or anything, but the, the the reality is this. If every single person in here, if all of us went out, and let's say, okay, we got a new year coming up. If every single one of us made it a habit and a point to really intentionally try to engage people around us with the gospel— not into numbers where it's like, you know, and evangelize 10 people. That might, if that helps do it, you know, but, but it's ultimately like, if this is a lifestyle that we cultivate in here, if we cultivate a lifestyle of, Hey, I'm evangelizing. I have friends. I have neighbors. I have people in my life that I'm, I'm going to share the gospel with. If we all cultivate that attitude, if we cultivate that, then, then God's church will grow. Whether they come here or not is whatever, but God's church will grow through that. So let that be a, a challenge and an encouragement for all of us. And then, and then that's individually but corporately too. Be on the lookout because we're going to plan some things to be able to come together and, and evangelize together. And I think uh, Eric mentioned this. When you evangelize together, it's like when you play sports together, you know how you have this camaraderie with the people you play with? When you, I'm sure this is the same way when you go into uh, any kind of service. When you're, you, know, you go to boot camp or whatever. The guys that you go through certain things with, you're closer to. That's the other beauty of corporate evangelism is you grow closer as a church together because you are on the front lines and you're in this together and you're kind of side-by-side working at this together. So there's a lot of good things that come from that. Um, So be encouraged. Look to Christ. No one has done it perfectly, but let's aim to do it perfectly. Let's aim to be very refined in this. All right, let's pray. Our Christ, we praise you that you are, you're the one who came and you sought us, Lord, when we were going astray, going our own way. We thank you, we praise you that you came and you delivered us, you rescued us, that there were people who, who shared the gospel with us, who opened up your word to us by the power and the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would give us, as your people here, power, open doors, Lord, give us grace to not only share the gospel with people, but to expect people to be saved, to see people saved, Lord. We pray for those in our lives. We pray for 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 those around us. Forgive us for our neglect. Forgive us for our lack of love, our hardness of heart. Lord, you alone can save souls. We know that, Lord. But, but Lord, give us the same love that you have for people, the, the love that you have for souls, the love that motivated Christ to come to earth to rescue sinners. Lord, give us that same love, that same passion for sinners, for the lost. Lord, we thank you that you have placed us in a community, regardless of what community we live in. Any community around here, Lord, we know that the place is filled up with lost people. So, Lord, thank you that you've given us a task to do. There's no room to be bored or anything else. You've given us this purpose in life. Save our children, Lord. Help us to be faithful at home first before we're faithful in the evangelization of others outside of our home. Well, Lord, give us grace in these matters. This stuff is way too big for us. Lord, we bring these things to you. We bring our shortcomings to you, our failings in this, our love for ourself and our fear of man. We bring all these things to you. We pray that you would use us, O oh Lord, in a powerful way by your Holy Spirit to see souls converted and saved. And, and, Lord, we thank you that you receive all the glory through this. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Is it getting dark sooner or is my sermon getting longer?